0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we always do this uh, every month. We do a bit of a, a, a roundup, uh, and we're going to start off, first of all, Blair, some things or trends that you're seeing right now Mm -hmm. that you haven't necessarily seen before
1: yeah so one definite one that's just happened in this last last month is anybody that owes Golden Ears Bridge Tolls um, you're about to get a bit of a surprise um so what happened is with our new NDP government, as we're all aware, tolls have been stopped on, you know, the Portman and Ears for quite some time. Um, but there has been, you know, an office and infrastructure where they've been trying to collect on the debts and so on and so forth. Uh, what's happened is just last week, I was speaking to these folks in their last couple of days of work there. Um, it's now just a collection agency. So if you owe the government money for Ears tolls, um, don't expect to call the province of BC anymore. Expect that you will be dealing with a collection agency. Um, and I would expect that your discussion are probably going to be a lot less friendly than somebody who you clearly pay their salary with the government, a collection agent um, is going to have a little bit of a different objective, that of getting as much money back as possible, as quick as possible.
0: Wow. Okay. So when you're saying golden ears, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think one uh, one trip across was what? Three dollars? Three
1: something, I think, yeah.
0: So, but this, I mean, would they be going after somebody like me who doesn't use the bridge very often uh, to the person who uses it two or three or four times a day? Like or, or is or is it is everybody fair game on this?
1: You know, I think there'll be some, you know, materiality threshold if you owe them six bucks. I don't think you're gonna hear too much. Um, but I would think, you know, anything that's above, you know, owed a hundred bucks or something like that, I would expect you'd at least get a letter. Um, But definitely if you've got something where you were driving the bridge and for whatever reason you were commuting, you just never paid and you owe thousands of dollars, um, if things have been quiet for a period of time, they might've been these last, you know, few months or a year, uh, I would expect them to heat up again quickly. So if you're in a situation with a lot of golden Ears bridged holes, you start to get collector calls, not the end of the world. It just means the debt's basically been given off to a collector, but it is something that you're going to want to deal with. So obviously give us a call at SANS or reach out to another trustee uh, and definitely a trustee can help you move forward on that
0: excellent okay what's these what's the second trend it says vehicle financing how's that a trend haven't we always had vehicle financing
1: well we definitely have but if you remember or at least definitely I remember when I was getting my license you know it was three year payments typically you're gonna finance a car you know three years four years maybe five years something like that um, so um, so you know definitely what we've seen is that the term of financing has extended in such a big way um, so I'm going to talk about an example in a, in a little bit here of the client that I was helping out, but I'm regularly seeing advertising of seven year financing terms, 84 months, um, you know, even as much as eight years or 96 months. Uh, it just seems insane to me that you know an asset, especially a car, depreciates so rapidly. You're still going to be making payments seven or eight years after you've purchased it. You know, hopefully, you've still got a good vehicle at that point, but you know, maybe not. Um, so it just seems, you know, we're really chasing a low monthly payment. And, you know, even now I've seen dealerships are quoting, you know, a biweekly payment or a weekly payment, even almost a daily payment, you know, just to really make it seem like the number is small, but they're obscuring the whole longer term, which means that, you know, vehicles are more expensive than ever and you're going to be paying a lot over the term.
0: Okay. So pay attention to the length of the term that they're suggesting or wanting or demanding that you sign up for. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see an example.
1: Yeah, so definitely one example I wanted to, to talk about for this month, and uh, it's one that's right on point with vehicle financing. Uh, this was an example where I was actually called um, by an individual and his mom, um, which, you know, some, sometimes happens because he was a relatively young guy. So uh, he was age 20, and he was driving a 95 Toyota Corolla, which was clearly, you know, giving up the ghost. It wasn't doing what he needed anymore. Um, he went in on his own to a car dealership and by his own admission, he says, you know, they saw me coming. Um, you know, they definitely thought, okay, this is someone that, you know, perhaps they can put into, you know, a really nice truck, a nice, nice vehicle. Um, and he, but by his own admission, you know, just didn't say no enough. So what happened is he walked out of the dealership with a deal for a 2017 full-size pickup for total loan payments of get this $77,332 divided over the next eight years.
0: That's, well. First of all, and it's uh, it's an age related thing for me. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine paying over seventy seven thousand dollars for a vehicle. Right. To me, that's just crazy. Right. But monthly payments of over uh, of around eight hundred and five dollars. Yeah. And then you've got here plus insurance costs. Yeah, you've
1: still got to insure this vehicle. You've got to put gas in it, maintain it, and insure it. So and it, the
0: gas alone, oh, yeah. man, that's yeah, a crazy amount a of money. Yeah, and
1: a full-size pickup. And if you can afford all this, it makes sense. But sure. the challenge is uh, the individual that came to see me, unfortunately, he couldn't afford it. Um, so you know, his monthly income was just about $2,200 per month. Uh, he was living on his own, and his rent was about half of that. It was about $1,000. So, Which
0: is pretty, pretty good rent. Rate well, if you can get it. Yeah, and
1: it's scary to say that $1,000 a month is good rent these days. Right? But, but unfortunately, in, that is the case. But yeah. in
0: the lower mainland... Yeah. Holy moly.
1: So a couple days after he had signed the vehicle, you know, he wasn't sure is there some cooling off period or things like that. So he went back to the dealership and just said, you know what, guys, I clearly I got caught up in the emotion. I made a mistake. You know, can we unwind this deal or figure out getting me into some vehicle I can afford? Um, They basically it was night and day. You know, there was his best friend when he's buying the vehicle, but they wanted nothing to do with him. They wouldn't help him at all. They basically said, you know, you've got to fi- find out a way to pay this loan um, or you can just, you know, sell the vehicle, pay a bunch down and, you know, pay it off over time. But either way, we're getting our money, we being the car dealership.
0: Now, one side of me says I have a little uh, little uh, being on my shoulder. Well, let's say l- let's say out loud who this dealership is, mm-hmm. but my bet is that they all operate this way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, they're not unusual to do it this way.
1: Yeah, this was definitely the the most egregious example I've seen of somebody getting into a vehicle that they just should not have gotten approved for. But, you know, definitely there are other examples, other dealerships where I'm sure sometimes maybe pushing towards month end, you know, you push through a deal that maybe it's it's on the bubble and maybe shouldn't get approved. But, you know, you get it through there. Right. You know, for the client that got that deal, especially in this case, you know, wasn't a positive thing. Um, So he came in to see me just incredibly distraught. You know, he's age 20 years old. He thought he had made a lifelong mistake or at least the next, you know, eight, 10 years was going to have, you know, no financial flexibility whatsoever. Um, And we actually looked at, well, what would happen if you were to sell the truck? And I remember this moment um, because I pulled up a Black Book value and we knew he was going to say, you know, he was going to have to pay $77,000 over eight years. So I said, you know, if I were to seize this truck and put it to auction, what's the Black Book tell me? Right. $31,600.
0: Which is less than half.
1: Less than half. Of what it costs. So we know things depreciate when you drive them off the lot, but that was massive. Yeah. And again, this is auction, you know, maybe retail might be about 10 higher. So we're still low 40s, but nowhere near the amount of payments he would be making over the next seven or eight years.
0: Or if you sell it privately, I know you can often do better than, than buy back from a dealership or certainly than auction value, but still, uh, you're not ever going to get that money back. That's 77000
1: yeah. yeah. So things looked pretty bleak for him. And then also in the meeting we uncovered, you know, he had been overspending a bit. He owed about $11,600 to, you know, to another bank on a credit card, you know, again, just some mismanagement overspending early
0: in sure. his career. Typical stuff.
1: So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? The first thing is I gave him the power of information, Elaine. I said, (laughs) the dealership is never going to tell you this, but there's a provision of the law in BC that says if you are financing a consumer good like a truck or a car or anything like that, and you haven't used it for business, if you're not able to pay the loan, if you stop paying, generally the dealership is going to have to take the vehicle back. And as much as they might yell and scream that you're going to be held accountable for the shortfall on the loan in the province of BC, they can't do that. So very very clearly, if they seize a vehicle for you because you haven't been paying on it, that's the end of the story. They cannot recover the difference from you.
0: So, does that impact my other the my other par- the other parts of my credit though?
1: It does. It's not okay. a good thing because it's a okay. repossession, right? So All obviously, right. Uh, and nobody's saying, you know, that there was you know, dishonesty here, you know, maybe the dealership could have done a better job of explaining things. Sure. But at the end of the day, the client signed on to an agreement. And if you don't, if you're not able to honor that agreement, it does take a hit on your credit. But what we also did is we figured out, let's solve the whole problem here. There's about eleven dollars or $12,000 of consumer debt. There's a $77,000 truck. Uh, what we worked with the client to do was a consumer proposal. Okay. So as part of the consumer proposal, we let the dealership know that they're not going to get any more payments on this truck and they should come and seize it whenever they want. Um, but we also were able to reduce his other debt, the 11600 that he was just you know, treading water on, making minimum payments, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, we actually did a consumer proposal for him to repay less than half of
0: that. And that was just of the other debt that he had. It, was, it didn't include the truck at all. Did I get that right?
1: That's right, because he didn't even need to do a proposal for the truck. all we had to do was explain to him that if you stop paying on this truck the provisions of the law it's called seize or sue and anybody listening out there that wants to do some google research just type in seize or sue in the province of bc and you'll see that the law says um that basically if you stop paying they have to seize the vehicle from you and they cannot sue you for the shortfall and that's different than almost every other province i'm originally from ontario if this example was happening in Ontario, I'd be saying, if you stop making the payments, they're going to seize this truck. They're going to sell it, you know, for between thirty and forty thousand, and you're going to be on the hook for whatever is owed on that loan. It's a very bad situation. Right. The province of BC does not operate like that.
0: Doesn't operate like that. So I bet that dealership after and here's okay. There's two points I want to make. First yeah. of all, because you are a licensed insolvency trustee, that's what Sands and Associates does. They're made up of a, a group of people who do this work every day. For folks, because you're federally regulated, you're the only ones that would have the ability or power to go to the dealership and say, this is the situation, you probably should just come and take your truck.
1: Well, yes, yes, and no. So we're the only people that can help with the other debts. So we're the only people that can do the consumer proposal um, to help the individual reduce the credit card debt that had built up. And we're often the only people that give people the information about seize or sue because really, who's making money in the situation here? Um, you know, I don't charge any money to give some free advice here, and the dealership is losing money by taking the the, the truck back. So if someone was working with a lawyer, they might get that advice, but they might pay for it. But, you know, essentially anybody could return their vehicle under the provisions of BCCs or sue. You don't have to necessarily work through a licensed insolvency trustee, but often a trustee is the person that actually makes you aware that you have these rights um, because there's really no other professional in the financial system that's unbiased, independent, and is responsible for giving you full information to help you make your decisions.
0: And if I was that dealership, I'd be going, Darn! We just should have taken the truck back when the poor guy came in and said, "Look, I can't afford this thing," because the result was the same for them.
1: Oh yeah, when I think about you know who really lost in in the situation, so you know yeah, the individual, um, his credit rating took a hit. He definitely learned a hard lesson, and happier he learned it at twenty rather than thirty or forty because there's a lot more time to recover here. But definitely from the dealership point of view, they could have had the vehicle back you know brand new condition two days in. They ended up getting it back because they waited for three months of missed payments. They ended up getting it back, you know, three or four months in. And, you know, I know it wasn't trashed by any means, but there is wear and tear after a vehicle of of a few months. So the dealership, you know, probably lost, you know, $10,000 or more out of this whole example. And hopefully it speaks to, you know, Dealerships and individuals should realize there's a shared responsibility when they're issuing financing, and as much as the dealership wants to get paid, individuals do have the ability to stop paying, and that would force the hand to either seize or sue.
0: Such good information. If any of this resonates with you and you're thinking, man, I didn't know that, what about my situation? Go see Sands & Associates. Check out their website, sans-trustee.com. It's filled chock-a-block with good questions and lots of good answers. And that may then kind of move you to make that phone call and get some help. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. It's always so great to have someone on the show, a real person who's gone through something and not only survived but benefited from all the from the hard experience and all the hard work, whether it be through a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Sometimes, you know, their situation can resonate with you and you get an idea or it feels familiar. Uh, we're, we feel so fortunate to have Tom on the show with us. He's, uh, Tom is a client of Sands & Associates, uh, wanted to come forward and tell his story in the hopes of helping others as well. Uh, so thank you, Tom, so much for joining us.
1: Great. Tom, I wonder, can you tell me a little bit about the situation that brought you to Sands & Associates? What was going on in, in your life? You know, what were you experiencing? And, and then what was it like to reach out for help?
2: Oh well, it started with um, being uh, unexpectedly taken out of work due to a medical situation, Okay. which then dragged on for long enough to cause financial stress.
1: Yeah, and was this a, a workplace in- injury? Something where you know you're getting your income replaced, or is there, there was a big income interruption there?
2: Uh, it was inc- uh, income interrupted. Um, it wasn't proven to be a work related injury. What it was mm-hmm. was I had a severe shoulder problem and needed surgery for correction. Uh, it was not covered by work safe BC. It was not covered by any work insurance. Right. I was on EI for a couple of months on what they call medical EI, but it's a very short period EI. And when I was cut off of that, I was basically left on my own to um, work out my finances while waiting ever so patiently for our BC medical system to um, to take note of me. Hmm.
0: And it doesn't. And while it's an awful situation for you, Tom, I bet it's not a super unusual situation for folks to find themselves in.
2: No, it's not. And we're all kind of at risk of something like this. If you don't plan ahead, which I had not. So when this came about, I did not have much savings in my account. Um, It's something that, you know, it was a hard lesson to learn to plan for the unexpected. It's a good idea to just salt away a small percentage of your paycheck every year, every every paycheck for that matter, Mm into a separate account that you might call your emergency account. And it might grow for 20 years without ever being touched, or it might be two years in and all of a sudden something happens that you need that money that you put aside. So that's really the lesson learned about that.
0: You know, and and while I appreciate the fact that, y- that you were able to learn that lesson, um, I doubt that very many folks, even one, think about it, or if they've thought about it, are even able to do that. So it's, uh, well, you know, it's pretty special you're, you're situation. You're onto something
2: right there, um, and it depends on your geographics. Like, I live in the Lower Mainland, and as we know, the Lower Mainland is one of the most expensive places to live. The yeah. cost of living compared to income is quite extreme. The cost of housing, whether you're renting or paying a mortgage, is a higher percentage of your income than most anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Yep. So you're right. It's really, really hard to budget in such a way that you have any money left over at the end of the month to to just put aside and forget about so, yeah, it can be, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck is not uncommon for a lot of the workforce.
1: And, and Tom, I wonder if you're comfortable sharing numbers or even just percentages, you know, what was the, the magnitude of the shock to your income? I assume you're earning, you know, pretty decent money to start, and then suddenly, um, you know, medical EI is, is not great. And then after that, you know, even lower income. So what what was that like in terms of, you know, either amounts or percentages? Okay. What,
2: I can give a quick rundown of my story. What it is is, I actually am I'm married without children. Um, there's a bit of an extra financial strain to to my situation. My wife is on long-term disability; she has MS and she cannot work. So she has a very, very low income through an insurance company. It barely covers a couple of bills. Uh, so basically, I'm supporting both of us. My income is. Fairly decent in a normal two-income family, but unfortunately, we're more of a one-and-a-half-income family. I'm around—I'll just give you the numbers. Actually, I'm around seventy to seventy-five thousand a year mm-hmm. uh, before taxes. That's my gross income. Right. Uh, I'm in the construction business and have to follow that market, so it can fluctuate from year to year. Mm-hmm. And due to the the cost of income, yeah, it was very difficult to to live within our means of the income that we had in combined income. So
0: Yeah, we get yeah, it.
2: When the, when the medical situation arose, I was not prepared in the sense that I did not even go into debt until after three months of not being in work. Mm-hmm. Now, when the EI ran out, this is a part a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their, their mind around. I went from a small income, the EI covered less than half of my normal wage, to zero income. And when I say zero income, I mean literally zero income. There was no insurance coverage. There was no uh, WCB coverage. There was no... I mean, I even went to the welfare office and applied to welfare to see if I could get any help there because I literally had 0.00 coming in every month for six months. And yet I had to cover rent, food, bills, gas, um, you know, to typical expenses that everybody has.
1: And Tom, I want to make sure, um, you know, the listeners can really understand where you're at now because that sounds like, you know, a pretty tough situation. Can you take me through, you know, the the steps uh, where you reached out for help and, you know, where you are today because I know you're in a much better spot now.
2: Uh, I'm afraid you're cutting in and out a little bit there, Ronnie. Oh,
1: apologies there, Tom. I I was wondering uh, for our listeners, um, would you be able to give a sense of kind of where things are at now? Because I'm aware they're significantly better. And, you know, when you reached out for help, how did that go? And was that something, you know, that really made a difference?
2: Okay. Well, I didn't reach out for help right away. I went down that rabbit hole of borrowing more and more money until there was no more money to borrow and no way of paying it back. Uh, I then, and all this time, I'm on this waiting list hoping that the surgery is going to show up and save my wallet, uh, which didn't happen. Uh, then when I realized that I was in real financial trouble, I phoned my creditors and let them know that I'm sorry, but until I go back to work, I simply cannot pay you back or even make a payment. Uh, it took a bit for them to wrap that around their head because they said, you know, even a small payment would make a difference. And i like, no, it's a, it's a zero income. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I started looking at my options. Um, I'd had heard of personal bankruptcy, so I explored that. I talked with a friend who had gone to a trustee and had his experience with that uh, a number of years ago. So I approached a trustee at that time. This is probably about two months before my surgery. Uh, and the one hitch to dealing with whether you declare bankruptcy or you do a consumer proposal, you do have to have some sort of income because you need to make a monthly payment towards your bankruptcy or towards your consumer proposal, no matter how small that is, it's going to be a percentage of your income. So when you start at zero, there's there's nothing you can do until you, until you can acquire some sort of income. So I had to wait until I went back to work before I, we approached Sands and Associates and said, okay, I'm back to work part time. There's my situation. And everything went uphill from there nice. quite quickly.
1: Yeah. And Tom, do you mind sharing what we were able to help you with? Obviously respecting your confidentiality. I haven't, you know, given any background here. Uh, but.
2: The experience actually was quite amazing. I don't mean to sound like a, a sponsor promoting <laughs> your company, but I got to tell you the being set at ease and the, the non judgmental uh, atmosphere and approach Good. that uh, your staff has is. Absolutely amazing. Um, after my first meeting, I mean, I walked out of there feeling a 100 times better. At that point, I was very stressed. I was very depressed, uh, you know, really feeling like I, I was trapped with no way out. And within the first meeting, I didn't feel that way anymore. Once I got everything established and chose a consumer proposal over a bankruptcy, because I could, and I would recommend to people that if you can do that option uh use bankruptcy as your last option not your first one if you can do a consumer po- proposal it's it's a it's a better way to go you might end up paying a bit more back but you'll also not be as financially hooped and shall we say credit hooped like your your credit rating takes a much bigger hit with a bankruptcy than it does with a consumer proposal.
0: I just want to jump Um, in at this point Tom because we were just running out of time. Um, Yeah no worries. The the consumer proposal you went and saw Sands and Associates and and that's what they were able to work out with you was doing the consumer proposal and I just want to remind the listener if there's Anything in Tom's story that resonates with you and uh, you're thinking that this may be uh, the path that you want to take, uh, first, go to their website. at sans-trustee.com. There's just loads of good information there that, that'll that give you even more information to take that next step. The 1-800 number to get a free consultation. That's your first consultation. And to find an office, 1-800-661-3030. Uh, and like I say, to find that SANS and Associates office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Andrew Smith. He's a licensed insolvency trustee with Sands & Associates. Andrew's got over nine years of experience in providing both business and personal debt management solutions, very straightforward guy we will be the judge of that Andrew very personable as well helping folks assess their situation and evaluate legal debt solutions understands that debt uh, help can seem pretty complicated and overwhelming uh, but believes with the right knowledge and friendly approach it doesn't have to be number one piece of advice and I'm going to ask you about this Andrew I love this Always read the terms of contracts and agreements before signing. You should know exactly how much it's going to cost you to repay any money you borrow and how these costs fit into your monthly cash flow. It sounds like pretty, I mean, it's good common sense. Uh, How often do you run into folks who haven't done that? Is it it common, Andrew? Yeah, it is
3: fairly common. Unfortunately, some people... Uh, they, they're they excited about the purchase or uh, the thing they might need to acquire uh, in the sense of maybe getting a loan to buy a car. They're, they're really excited about the car, uh, and they don't really read the terms to find out exactly how much it's going to cost them over the long haul.
0: And the long haul, I bet that's the key, right? You look at your monthly payment and then think, okay, well, that that's doable, but it's going to go on for, you know, I don't know how long a car loan can go on for, but... Years and years and it. In, in some
3: yeah. Nowadays, they, nowadays they can do they can uh, do a car loan up to eighty four months. Wow! Uh, and that can really uh, that's almost seven years, and really can push uh, people's cash flow uh, for the long time.
1: Yeah, and, and Andrew, if you can believe it, I actually had a client um, a couple weeks ago. It was eight years of financing. So I couldn't believe that. I'm like, so twelve times eight. What is that? That's like ninety six months of financing. Yeah. Oh my lord! Like that's a long time to be making a payment. Yeah, it is. It is.
0: So one of the things we're going to focus on with you, Andrew, is folks who are self-employed, how they get into trouble with debt and what can be done about it. Um, So let's talk about sort of the most common thing that you come across.
3: Yeah, the most common uh, creditor that I find uh, anybody that has is a self-employed individual. uh, Usually they're ending up owing money to the Canada Revenue Agency for personal income taxes and GST.
0: So that's Uh, the... Uh, The most common creditor is Canada Revenue.
3: Yes, it is. Wow. That's usually from filing taxes at the end of the the year and just realizing maybe they don't have the money set aside to pay that debt.
0: So how does somebody get into that kind of situation? Like, what what aren't they doing?
3: Uh, What I find with dealing with my clients is that Usually, there's a number of things of how this debt arises. Uh, sometimes it's from just when they go to file their taxes um, and their GST returns, they realize they're not making the uh, regular installments to towards the obligations. Uh, so, when you're a self-employed person, uh, CRA usually wants you to file um, monthly or quarterly installments with them and pay pay something towards that debt. But when what happens is when they actually go and file their return. Um, they might not have actually made those installments. Um, Sometimes people actually just don't file their income tax returns um, or file their GST returns that they've signed up to do, and CRA just turns around and looks at past performance of what they've had filed, and then they assess them for an amount. Um, And in that case, they get a letter saying, hey, you owe um, this amount of money, and a person is kind of shocked about it too.
1: Now, Andrew, one of the challenges that I have when I sit down with folks who are self-employed is that, you know, basically anybody can become self-employed at any time. You know, you don't have to take a crash course. There's really nobody that gives you, you know, here's the pitfalls that you need to, to look out for. So I wonder, Andrew, can you just kind of break it down? You know, what are the basic things you're talking about, you know, installments? What, what does that mean for someone, um, you know, who has a, a basic, basic business? And then also GST, just for someone who maybe is not self-employed or has started and maybe isn't doing things right, what should they be concerned about on those, those two factors that you mentioned, the installments and the GST?
3: Yeah, so installment payments, uh, I mean, so the government wants you to actually uh, make a monthly payment towards what you might actually owe at the end of the year.
1: So, so if, if you, you thought you were going to owe account. you know ten thousand dollars in taxes, they'd want you know just under a thousand dollars a month. Is, is that right? They yeah,
3: or every yeah, and every quarter they might want you to pay three thousand dollars. So once a month, pay a thousand dollars so that you meet that three thousand dollar quarterly payment um, with GST. Usually, someone might have to file their return uh, quarterly or even annually. Uh, so what a self-employed person should be doing is tracking what, they've <clears throat> what they're have what they actually collecting in GST from their customers uh, as well as how much GST they're paying when they're buying supplies so that then at the end of the year when they file that return, they can uh, take the two differences and then they should be making a, rem- a remittance to the government for that balance of the GST that's owing.
1: So I think that's an important uh, point too. So if, if someone's self-employed and they're charging GST – um, you know they are actually able to recover some of that GST. To your point, Andrew, if they got to keep all their receipts for purchases in their business, but you know I've seen that again and again. People pay GST, but they don't actually know that they can recover some of it on their purchases.
3: Yeah, and that's the, and that's something sometimes uh, I deal with that with my clients as well. Is they they sometimes don't realize that they're actually overpaying uh, on their GST back to the government because of they're not tracking. Uh, their their GST that they're paying. And that is the important thing that they have to do is they have to keep those receipts so that they can prove it to the government that, yes, I have paid this GST and then be allowed to deduct that against what they've collected.
0: So it sounds like there's a definite need for either the self-employed person to be an extraordinarily good bookkeeper, or they need to have a good bookkeeper that's that's kind of knowledgeable, pretty knowledgeable about what a self-employed person's taxes look like or, or yeah, from day to day, week to week, and then at the end of the day, knowing what their tax situation is going to look like?
3: Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, they do have to be organized. I What I tell my clients is that try to find yourself a good bookkeeper. Um, reason is, is because uh, as a as a um, insolvency professional, I'm good at insolvency, but if I were to be doing my own plumbing, um, that's not something I have any skill in, um, and I would be making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I tell them, hey, take your all your receipts, put them in an envelope, uh, pass them off to your bookkeeper, get them to prepare and record your transactions, so that then you know um, someone's tracking it, and then they can give you a report saying to, in respect of your GST, they can do a report telling you, okay, this is how much you owe, and then you know that, okay, I, I have to make a remittance to the government, say, of $500 to pay the GST, and at least then at the end of the year, when you when you come to the uh, – you get your final – you file that GST return, you know that, hey, I've made installments towards that debt, and now I don't have a, any – a large bill to pay
1: And Andrew, what does that relationship look like with with a bookkeeper? You know, does that have to be, you know, a CA or a CPA? Is that someone that would cost a lot of money? You're meeting them all the time. Or what what do you think, you know, a good working relationship? You know, again, let's assume it's a relatively straightforward, you know, self-employed individual, perhaps a tradesperson or something like that. You know, what would they really need from a bookkeeping relationship, do you think?
3: Well, I think they need to have uh, some confidence in who the person they're dealing with. It doesn't have to be a CA or a CPA um, to do the bookkeeping side, but if you have a, a really good relationship with uh, with this, your accountant, they might be able to recommend a good CPA and or, sorry, a bookkeeper, uh, but you might only need them to do maybe 10 hours of work a month, uh, and that might cost you a couple hundred dollars uh, to do, but uh, it would give you the peace of mind to know that, that this is all being recorded, this is all, all being tracked, so that at the end of the day, you can rest... Uh, and know that you're not uh, left with a large tax bill.
1: And, and Andrew, Elaine, and I, we, we talk a lot on the show, you know, about owing money and how it can be pretty scary. And uh, you know, obviously, you can't choose who you owe money to. Um, but why don't we spend a minute, you know, from your perspective, why is the government somebody that you really wouldn't want to owe money to compared to others?
3: Yeah, uh, I wouldn't want to be owing the government a lot of money because they do have uh, the power to uh, to come after you in di- in ways that, say, your fi- your financial institution can't, um, they can garnish your bank account. Uh, they can send notices to your your customers and request uh, that they they pay the money that they owe you uh, to the government rather than paying it to yourself.
1: So that's incredibly um, and disruptive, and it, right? Not not to mention embarrassing. They're basically cho- choking off your livelihood at the source. There.
3: Yeah, yeah, and if the yeah, it is. And what also the the government can do. Is they can register the debt in federal court and then put a lien against your property. So you might not even know that uh, um, that you have a lien against your property a- until they actually notify you. Um, and that's the that's the hard part as a self employed person if you get yourself into a situation where you do owe the government uh, quite a bit of money um, and they have not been able to collect that money from you.
1: Hmm. That that's a little bit of a tough situation to be in, obviously. And, and Andrew, I know day to day you meet with people who are in these situations. Um, you know what type of options exist if you owe the government money? Because I know, uh, you know, obviously from having guests on this show and from sitting down in my day to day, a lot of people are of the opinion there's nothing you can do if you owe the government money. Uh, you've got to pay it or come, you know, come anything. You're going to pay this debt one way or the other. Um, is that true, Andrew? What are the options?
3: Well, the people, as a self-employed person, they do have some various options under the, the legislation. Um, they do have the ability to file a consumer proposal if their debts are under $250,000. Um, and they could make an offer to the government to pay back uh, something less than what they actually owe um, and not have them garnish their bank accounts uh, they could, and have their uh, accounts receivable seized. Or, and they, that could stop a lien being put on their property. Um, another option, if it was a worst-case scenario for them in the sense they didn't have any other, they couldn't file a consumer proposal, they could file bankruptcy um, and and start fresh. Um, and depending on what their, their financial situation is, their bankruptcy could be nine months to, uh, to 21 months.
1: Yeah, so definitely not a lifelong sentence to deal with the debt and nothing you'd want to take lightly. But uh, I think for people to understand there is hope out there and, you know, government debt, as I often say, it's the same as every other debt. We, we can deal with it. We can help to restructure it. Um, Andrew, I wonder if we can talk just a little bit about some pieces of advice. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting a bookkeeper, and that seems like a really strong piece of advice for someone who's self-employed. Uh, what else? If someone is listening here, and again, maybe they're just starting off in business or they might already find themselves in a state where they owe the government, uh, what's, what's another piece of advice beyond a bookkeeper, do you think?
3: Well, finding a good bookkeeper is definitely, the I, I think, the top um, advice that I can always give people. But I think even if you are going to track uh, or you just don't have a very um, large business, uh, you can, can just make monthly installments to the government. Um, so maybe you don't actually know how much you're going to owe them. But if you make a, a monthly payment to the government for your personal income taxes um, or your G, or towards your GST account, um, the government has, has to recognize that when you actually file the returns and then give you credit for those payments.
0: We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Bethany Can. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. Bethany works with Sands and Associates primarily in the Abbotsford and Langley offices for the one-to-one financial counseling sessions. Now, we know a little bit about Bethany. Uh, We know that she feels it's pretty important to provide help without judgment. Boy, is that ever true. And says, through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management and, most importantly, hopeful about the future. Bethany's number one piece of advice for people seeking help with their debts is... In order to achieve your goals, let go, don't dwell on the past, let us help you focus on your future and get you where you want to be. Having said that, I think that's awesome, Bethany. Uh, looking forward, so important because, boy, having debt can be just so debilitating for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking about it from the from the place of, once you learn those important lessons, which I think this is where you, you come in in this process, um, to help people make better decisions or better choices uh, when they come up against, so I think that's mm-hmm. great advice. Now, um, so let's start uh, talking about the counseling sessions that Sands and Associates offer. Um, and are they are they mandatory for clients coming in
4: the door? Yes, um, in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process, it is required by the superintendent to attend um, the two counseling sessions.
0: Now that must be, yeah, I was going to say that besides it being mandatory, I can't imagine doing, going through this process without having some kind of counselling to back it up.
4: Yeah, I think it's really helpful for people. Um, The objective of the counselling sessions is to help with the overall financial rehabilitation. Um, Hopefully we uh, are helping people with the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal, a one-time occurrence in their lives, and we want them like you said before, to feel uh, hopeful about their future. Now, I
0: bet um, that's that's not the case when they walk in
4: your door. Right. No, there is quite a difference from the first counselling to the second counselling session, that's for sure.
0: Can you give us a couple of words to describe what the first counselling, what are folks, and, and I'm asking you this just because I want folks who are listening to know that they're, you know, that if they're feeling really apprehensive um, about taking this step or feeling embarrassed, um, that they're not alone.
4: And that's a great word to describe it. Um, I I do feel like a lot of people are, you know, ashamed or embarrassed um, in the first counseling session. Um, And I do start to notice, you know, 10 or 15 minutes into the counseling session that that does You know, they start feeling a little bit better as we talk about it. A lot of the people that are here, it is life circumstances that have brought them um, to this place. It isn't, you know, a reflection of who they are or their work ethic. And when you talk to someone about that, um, I really feel like they feel a lot better and differently about it. Their perspective changed a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that, that's such a key point, Bethany. I've had so many clients, you know, even, you know, years after have come back and said, you know, it's that when they got the message from us that, hey, this doesn't define you. You know, this is a temporary right. state. You're in debt now. It doesn't mean you're a person who will always be in debt or deserves to always be in debt. But as soon as you can break from, you know, just that self-definition of, oh, my God, I'm a bad person that made some mistakes and I'll never move forward, um, you know, making that right. mental change is really important. I think the counseling helps with that.
0: Definitely. So what about the second counseling session? Does this happen um, farther into the process or whereabouts does that, does it normally happen?
4: Yeah, it usually happens a month or two after the first counseling session. Okay. Um, huge difference. Um, I see a lot of smiles come and walk into my office. They're very excited um, to share with me, you know, the updates. They hold their head a lot higher. Um, from what I hear from them, i feel definitely feel like they're managing their money instead of the money managing them. Um, A lot of them come in and they want to, you know, show me how many, how much savings they have in the bank now. They're a lot happier, they're stress-free, and a lot of people say, I'm finally sleeping. (laughs) So, big difference.
0: Big difference. What are the actual things that you, uh,
4: or issues that you cover in your second session? Right, great question. So, um, in the second counseling session, if um, the person has gone bankrupt, then we do a file review um, just to make sure all of their duties are up to date. Um, if they're not, we do I go over it just so we can get the clients caught up. And could
0: you define in this
4: process? Could you yeah. define what do du- what duties the client has? Right. So in the bankruptcy process, um, they have income and expense statements, um, and those are monthly reports, and that shows the income and their outgoings as well. And I really think a lot of people, you know, the first couple of months, it's a bit tough to get into the habit of tracking where their money goes. But once they do, they're like, I'm never going to stop because now it's an eye-opening eye-opening experience seeing how much life has actually been costing me. Mm. So <clears throat> I think they found that really helpful. So that's a duty. Um, you know, there are fees, so they have to make sure that they're, Catching up on all of those, so those are the kind of things that we go over.
0: Um, what happens when somebody is uh, discharged from their bankruptcy uh, or proposal? Because I'm sure that they're wanting to know that as well,
4: right? So once um, they are discharged from this process, they do um, get you know notified that of a certificate. Um, then we do suggest, and this is what we go over in the second counseling that you check your Equifax and TransUnion reports because we want to make sure they are correct. Um, we also go over in the second counseling a lot of questions, need versus want. You can usually justify making a lot of purchases, but really dialing in what is a need and a want. Yeah,
1: that's one thing um, we're, we're we great have... at at humans is finding the justification for what we actually yeah. want to do. So I um, know that, that need versus wants, it sounds so simple, but my God, that's the difference a lot of the time between people, um, you know, making the wrong decision or not is really understanding what's a need and what's a want.
0: Can you guys give give us some criteria of how you, of how you help somebody figure out what a need is and what a want is? Either one of
4: you.
1: Yeah, Bethany, do you have any, any insight?
4: You know, it completely depends on the person. A lot of um, the needs are, I usually say, go with the medical things first. Some people, you know, need glasses and they haven't been able to get glasses. Right. Um, Lots of medical things, I definitely say that's a need. Um, Once, like Blair says, people justify them, um, you know, us included. We have to kind of keep tabs on that as well. But once, you know, a newer car, um a handbag you know mm-hmm. different things blair i'm not i'm not sure
1: yeah, no, I, I think you, you hit it right on there, Bethany. So if I'm thinking about, you know, well, what do you really need in life? You need a roof over your head. You need to, you know, be able to mm-hmm. feed yourself, take care of your family. So all those are basic needs. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of wants in there. You know, you might want to grab the coffee on the way to work every morning, but you need that? No. And you could definitely save money making it at home. And there's nobody that comes to us with they bought a coffee every day, but it can be symptomatic of, you know, a, a bigger issue uh, of, you know, just really not having any sort of, you know, denial. Sometimes you have to be able to say, no, I don't really need this. I just want it. And you know what? I can't afford it. Right
0: now. how about uh, what are the what are some other things I know we we've we've made a note about um, ways to rebuild your credit and I'm sure for some folks they can't even believe that they could start that process no, so,
4: how, how difficult so, yeah, is we, that how difficult yeah well um, we do go over that in the first counseling session as well and then we touch on it again in the second counseling session so a lot of people are very surprised at the rebuilding process, and they can rebuild when they're in this process as well, which I think people are very happy and hopeful about that. Um, So, you know, there's two things that we go over in the second counseling is RRSP loans is a way to rebuild your credit. Right. Um, So that's an installment loan, so that shows your future creditors that you can utilize different kinds of credit. Um, And then another one is the secured credit cards, um, and that's another, you know, helpful one as well.
0: Absolutely. I just think it's so great that you've been able to take some time with us today, Bethany, because I I think the counseling uh, set part of this process is so important for folks. I get all the data and I get all the putting in the information together, but, but having that little bit of support on the uh, in the process is so important. And listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and and you feel like you yourself or you know somebody uh, needs a hand to get out of debt, uh, this is the way to do it. First of all, if you want to go to Sands & Associates' website, it's sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you.